Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Well, good morning, Vineyard Cleveland. (laughs) It's great to be with you guys here on the third week of Advent. Um, Advent is very much a time of waiting and anticipation, of looking forward with... (laughs) Looking forward with hope to the fulfillment of God's promises and the redemption of the world by looking back to what it means that Jesus has come, right? He really came into the real world. And uh, our Advent series this year has really been honing in on the truth of Emmanuel, that God is with us. Ben talked about the life-changing hope and power that we receive through the reality of the Incarnation. Um, Last week, Eben talked about how Jesus is Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace is with us, and how that brings wholeness and tranquility, and how we join in that mission. And this week, believers all around the world are lighting the Advent candle that represents the love that Jesus Jesus embodies. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, thank you so much that you are here with us, God. Pray that you would really help us to take that reality in, to let it sink into our hearts. Lord, you are here, and you want to change us. You want to speak to us, God. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you, Lord, that we can behold you, because when we see you, we're changed by you, God. We want to worship you and be connected to you. So remove all the distractions that keep us from you, all the distractions in our hearts, in our minds, all of our plans for the past and the future. Help us to be here with you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So this was a tricky sermon for me to prepare. Usually when we do a sermon series, there is like a Bible verse or a passage that is the foundation of the message. But this week, we're talking about love. And 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. And because scripture is the revelation of who God is, That means that love is one of the core foundations of the entire Bible. It's not too much of a stretch to say that you can't even truly understand the Bible unless you fit everything that happens into the framework of God revealing what true love looks like to us through history. And it's important to know what true love really is because the world is filled with all kinds of ideas blind guesses, and heartbreaking attempts at how we can experience this crazy little thing called love. Our hearts ache for love. Like the band Foreigner, we cry out, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Don't worry, that's the end of the singing for today. That that, that one was free. The rest of it, you got to wait for. (laughs) If we really want to know what love is, We need to look at God because God is love. And so that's what I want to try to do today. I really want to remind us of who God is. I want us to really look at him to let the truth of his goodness sink in. Because when we see God, we worship him. And when we worship him, we're changed. And one of Satan's main tactics to destroy us is to distract us from looking at God, to make us forget him or take him for granted. So, let's look at the love of God. 
I'm going to talk about four aspects of God's love. God's love is not self-seeking. He's selfless. God's love is secure and enduring. God's love is lavishly sacrificial. And God's love is determined and relentless. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, right? You could sing forever about all the different aspects of God's love. But these aspects are the ones that God is bringing to my mind as important to understanding what God's love is to us and what God's love looks like coming through us. So firstly, God's love is selfless, not self-seeking. Pastor and author Tim Keller says that much of what we call love or feelings of love is actually just a hunger for enhancement. We say in our hearts to someone, oh, you've got beauty. You have humor or wisdom. You make me feel good. You will enhance my life. You will make me better. I feel better when I'm with you. And that's what draws us to spend time with a person, to develop those feelings of love. That's what attracts us to a person. We want to make them our spouse or, you know, whatever. But what attracts God to us? How do we enhance his life? What benefit do we bring him? Nothing. There is nothing that God gets from us that he couldn't get and isn't already getting from somewhere else with infinite improvement. Are you a good singer? Do you sing like an angel, like a literal angel? Do you follow God with all your heart? Do you pray? Again, are you an angel? Are you communicating with God like Jesus and the Holy Spirit are communicating in the Godhead? He doesn't need anything from us. So how did we attract him? We didn't. We had no loveliness of our own to draw him in. We were dead in our transgressions. In spite of all this, in spite of the fact that there is nothing inherently attractive about us and he doesn't really gain anything from us, God loves us. His love is selfless, not self-seeking. A true love that makes our happiness his own happiness so that our joy is his joy. Our sorrow is his sorrow. Why does God love us? He loves us because he loves us. Speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9, Moses says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out, of, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So why does God love you? Well, the Bible says that God loves you because he loves you. Now, that might seem like a circular argument, like a non-answer, but it's really the only answer that can give us any sort of security. If God loved you because you were a great singer or because you were a hard worker or you were kind or you prayed a lot, that's a conditional love, right? That begs the question, well, would you still love me if I lost my voice? What if I get sick and can't work? Would you still love me the same? Would you still love me if I was less kind or if I didn't read the Bible that much, if I didn't pray as long? 
But because God's love is based off of nothing but God's own love, that means his love is secure. This is the second aspect. God's love won't change with our performance or our lack thereof. It won't change when we change. God is the faithful God who keeps his covenant of love, and he loves us because he loves us. Psalm 103.17 says, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children. Psalm 136 is a great psalm, and it has a constant refrain. His love endures forever. The phrase is repeated 26 times in 26 verses to really hammer it into your head that his love endures forever. So no matter what happens to you, his love endures forever. No matter what you go through, his love endures forever. No matter how you change, his love endures forever. No matter what choices you make, his love endures forever. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's Romans 8, 37 through 39. And you also should be convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because the third aspect we're going to talk about is that his love is lavishly sacrificial. Consider how much Jesus gave up in order to be with you. And that'll convince you nothing will separate you from his love. He was on the throne in heaven with his Father and the Holy Spirit, enjoying perfect harmony, perfect love. He had uncountable angels all around him, each unique in their beauty and their majesty and their power. He had crystal seas and golden roads and shimmering rainbows and all kinds of beauty that you couldn't even imagine. He had no pain. No tears, no sickness, no suffering, no death. He never had to be tired, never had to be hungry or cold or thirsty or go to the bathroom or any of the weaknesses that we just normally associate with regular life. And everyone in heaven loved him, right? Everything he wanted was done just as he wanted it. That's why we pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything was joy all the time, and he got to be his fullest self, radiantly explosive in a glory brighter and more awe-inspiring than the sun, moon, and all the stars and galaxies and planets combined. And yet, he sacrificed all of that, gave it all up in order to give you love. He emptied himself of all of that willingly so that he could come close to you, he gave up infinite power to become a tiny, crying, poop on himself, can't lift his own head, newborn baby, right? Like, we all had to be babies. That all, that's something we all had to do. Jesus didn't have to do that, but he chose to do that. 
He chose to experience that utter weakness of, oh, I'm on my belly and I can't lift my head up. He had to go through that, and he chose to go through that for you. He gave up infinite knowledge to learn how to walk, talk, how to move his hands to put things into his mouth without hitting his face. He gave up timeless immortality to grow and change and experience the ups and downs of life. He willingly took on every awful thing, pain and loneliness and betrayal and exhaustion and rejection and slander and sickness and hunger and homelessness and embarrassment and grief and loss and shame and death. And probably worse than all of these, he sacrificed his pure, untainted perfection by taking every sin you've done, everything you've ever done that makes you feel slimy and small on the inside, the things that you want to hide forever. He sacrificed his goodness in order to take those from you. You know that feeling that you get when you've done a really good job on something or when you've done like just the right thing, when you know that you are in the right and you just feel good about yourself. That was Jesus all the time for literally all of time. And he traded the best you've ever felt about yourself, even better than that, for worse than the most rotten you've ever felt about the most rotten things you've ever even thought. And he did that to remove every barrier, every reason, every excuse that would keep us away from him. 1 John 3.1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And what's crazier than all this, what's more unbelievable to me and hard to grasp, is that this was not a one-time lavishing. It wasn't like, okay, whew, I did the cross, now I'm done for eternity. No, Jesus is constantly lavishing goodness on you. He's constantly giving good things to you. He's constantly lavishing his love on you, constantly sacrificing his dignity to be with us. Have you ever been like, oh, I'm too tired to pray? Eh, I don't feel like reading my Bible. Like, you don't feel time, feel, you don't feel like spending time with the God of the universe? who loves you so much. I'm not even saying you, this is me too. And then I think, wow, I can't believe God puts up with this because I would be done. But that's how much his love is. It's lavishly sacrificial. He continues to sacrifice even today. He never gets tired of loving you. And that's because God's love is determined and relentless. This is the fourth aspect. God is absolutely committed to bringing about the best for you. He will not get tired or give up. He will not take a shortcut. He will do whatever it takes to bring about what is best for your life because he truly, deeply, relentlessly loves you. God loved you at your worst. He loves you as you are, and he is loving you into something even better. God has a vision for you that exceeds your wildest imagination. He is forming you into a version of yourself free from all of your stains and blemishes and weaknesses, free from everything that you hate about yourself, better than you could ever hope to be. A version of yourself so perfect that even your dream self pales in comparison. And because of his great, steadfast, secure, and enduring, relentless love, he is going to fight for you to make that happen. 
He won't let anything stand in your way, not even yourself. He will fight for you. And sometimes that might feel like he is fighting you, but he is only ever always doing what is best for you out of his great love. I know, right? (laughs) Thank you, Siri. I thought so too. Um, Siri said, interesting question for those of you who didn't catch that. Uh, Most people of our day like to quote 1 John 4.16, which tells us that God is love, which is a magnificent, wonderful truth. But another magnificent, wonderful truth comes from Exodus 15.3, where Moses sings, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Being a warrior is a reality that is crucial to God's nature. God is the creator. God is all-powerful. God is patient. God is love. God is a warrior. But why? That's where Siri should say, interesting question. Uh, People like to say things like, make love, not war, and I'm a lover, not a fighter. But God is both. God is a lover and a fighter. And that's because love and war are not as far apart as we tend to think. Because to the degree that you love something, the warrior in you will rise up to protect and defend it if it's threatened. A mama bear is not usually violent. They usually don't care about most things because they're bears. What can threaten them? But if you threaten a mama bear's cub, that will cause a mama bear to get violent. And I'm sure the same can be said of most of you right? When your loved ones are threatened, that causes the warrior to rise within you because you want to protect and defend what you love. And, you know, we fight for what we care about, even in ridiculous ways. Like, why does a fire lighten my belly when I'm cut off in traffic? It's because I love my respect and my dignity and the safety of my car, and I love getting to where I'm trying to get to. Why are disagreements that are close to the heart more likely to become heated arguments. It's because that warrior is rising up to defend the ideas that you love. Now, our warrior can cause problems because our loves tend to be disordered and disproportionate. But with perfect wisdom and perfect love, the Lord, the the perfect warrior lover, rises to protect and defend his beloved. And he needs to defend us because we live in a world at war. We are continually, constantly under attack. The Bible teaches that we have a real, personal, spiritual enemy who is actively looking to steal, kill, steal from, kill, and destroy us. 1 Peter 5.8 warns you to be on your guard because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. Ephesians 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark age, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But don't worry, brothers and sisters, because God is with us. Emmanuel, this warrior lover, loves us so much that he faced down the devil and all of his armies, conquering them to set us free. 1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In Matthew 12, 28 and 29, after being challenged on where he got the power to drive out demons, 
Jesus says, well, if it's by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Because how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Satan is compared to a strong man holding us as his treasure, but Jesus has defeated and tied up the enemy to bring us into his own loving arms. But Satan is not the only force that attacks us in this world. We live in a world that is broken, corrupted, and cursed because of sin. The whole world is subject to sickness, death, and decay, groaning because it has fallen from what is what it was created to be. We have earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and cancers and COVIDs that seem to happen at random. The world is filled with broken systems created and sustained by broken people. And those broken people continue to break other people who continue to break other people. The rich get richer and suffocate themselves with their riches. The poor get poorer and drown in their poverty. People lie and abuse and exploit and kill each other. And sometimes it doesn't feel like there's any hope that any good, meaningful change can happen. But Isaiah 9 tells us that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God prophesied in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 that there is a new day coming. Emmanuel, this warrior lover, loves us and is with us and fights for us. Jesus came as the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that the brokenness of this world will be no more. 
He's fighting for and is already bringing to reality his kingdom where we won't be any more threat or we won't be under any more threat from the brokenness outside of us. And we know that because Jesus came, because God already initiated this this promise, it's going to happen. God's promises are sure. But we are not only under attack from the brokenness outside of us, right? We are also under attack from the brokenness inside of us, betrayed by our own sin. 1 Peter 2.11 tells us to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our soul. Ephesians 4.22 tells us to put off our old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. James 1.14 and 16 tells us that those desires, those deceitful desires, they trick us and they want to drag us away to entice us, to tempt us, so that these desires will give birth to sin, which will then give birth to death. But Jesus, our warrior lover, has fought for us and has won this battle too. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. That's 1 Peter 2.24. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus destroyed the power of sin to rule over us, and he gave us his righteousness, purifying us, protecting us. And he will continue to fight for us. He fights for us so that we can continue to grow in holiness, so that we can become more like him in this world, to experience God's goodness and to show others what it's like. He fights against our tendencies towards impatience, towards judgment, towards rage. He fights against our lust. He fights against our delusions of self-sufficiency, our envy, our bitterness, and hardness of hearts. He fights against our doubt, against our apathy, against our distractions. Jesus fights against everything that keeps us from fully experiencing him. He loves us too much to be soft on our sin. Like a gardener with pruning shears, like a surgeon with a scalpel, Jesus will use everything necessary, even pain, in order to bring you to fuller life, to freedom, so that you can blossom into who you were made to be, someone experiencing and expressing the full and perfect love of God. And he does this all because of his great love, the love that would not let him sit back not let him sit back and watch us destroy ourselves. The love that would not let him leave us unfinished and imperfect. The love that caused him to give up everything so that he could come and take all of our sin, our failures, and our brokenness, to take all of our mess onto himself so that he could be God with us, Emmanuel. God is this all-powerful warrior lover. And what does that mean for us? It means that we can have comfort and peace in any and every circumstance because we know that our God who loves us is also fighting for us. And if he's fighting for us, we know that we will always win. His strength is greater than any adversary, spiritual, natural, or otherwise. 1 John 4, 4 says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
And Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says, the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you the victory. We can have freedom from anxiety and fear because Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but great gave him up for his all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Because God is passionately on our side, we can know that he is always actively at work using every situation in our lives to bring about our greatest good, to bring us to our greatest good. When the doubt and confusion and anger rise up in us when we suffer, or looking at the injustice of the world, or roiling in guilt and shame or disgust at our weakness and sin, we can preach to ourselves the truth. Jesus loves me and he's fighting for me. He is making everything right and all things new. He's fighting for you with all of the passionate love that caused him to give up perfection and enter into your pain, all so that you could experience his love to the utmost. And to experience God's love is to be faced with a choice because you can choose to resist God's love. Although God is a warrior, he's not going to force you to accept his love. You can choose to reject his love and continue in the delusions of control and autonomy. You can choose to fight your own battles in your own weakness and make your own choices, which will inevitably lead to fearfulness, anxiety, hurt, brokenness, emptiness, futility, and shame. And even in this, though, God will not relent in loving you. He will never stop. Romans 5, 7 says that God demonstrates his love for us in the truth that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. He loves you now. John 3.16 says that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. So he will keep loving you even if you say you don't want his love. Even if you cut off all, you cut yourself off from all of his benefits, the warrior lover will still continue to love and fight for you. But when we say yes to God's love, we are joining his side in the wars that he is fighting and winning. The wars that he is fighting and winning for us. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And being part of his kingdom means that we respond to God's love by loving him like he loves us. A true love that makes his happiness our own happiness so that his joy is our joy. His sorrow is our sorrow. We become warrior lovers who fight for God's glory to lift him up because he is worthy and because our joy is wrapped up in his. We fight to display the glories of God's kingdom, to shine his light into darkness and to tear down the devil's work, to stomp out injustice, speak out on behalf of the oppressed, to set captives free. We fight the deceptive evils of sin in our own self and around us with no mercy for sin and infinite mercies towards the sinner, just like Jesus has towards us. We love others in the way that God loves us, with a love that is not self-seeking. 
a love that is secure and enduring, a love that is lavishly sacrificial, and a love that is relentlessly aimed towards the good of others. And we can do this not because we're good people and not because God's love is a good idea or an inspiration. God's love is a new reality. It's a spiritual power that has transformed us into new creations. His spirit works in us to make this love a reality. His spirit works through us so that we can bring this reality to others. I'm going to close with the words of 1 John 4, 16 through 19, which says, And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, in God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, but we love because he first loved us. So let us pray. Jesus, there are no words to express the, mag- the magnificence of your love, the majesty of your love. It's incomprehensible. Lord, I pray that you would give us the capacity to understand this love that is beyond knowledge so that we can be filled to the fullness with all of, your, with all of you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grasp how long, how deep, how wide, and how high the love of Christ is that we would be changed by you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to believe the truth that you fight for us, that when we feel like no one is on our side, we know that you are. God, we pray that you would help us to believe that truth and to to preach that truth to each other and to teach that truth to the world, God, to show it and display it in our lives as we fight for, for your good and for the good of others, Lord, because we love them because we love you. Let your love transform us in Jesus' name. Amen.